Welcome to today's Cato Institute Capitol Hill Briefing, What to Do About Climate Change. I'm Kurt Couchman, Manager of Government Affairs at the Cato Institute. Before we get started with today's program, there's just a few little things that I'd like to bring to your attention. First of all, the Cato Handbook on Policy is our comprehensive guide to all the things that policymakers should be doing. Uh, if you'd like a copy of that or anything else, see me or Brandon Arnold, the Director of Government Affairs at the Cato Institute. Um, also, the pocket-sized, handy-dandy Cato Pocket Constitution and Declaration of Independence. Uh, great to have on your person at all times. Uh, and also, we have the Cato Today daily e-newsletter. It keeps you informed about uh, recent op-eds, uh, upcoming events, policy analyses, and all that. If you'd like to sign up for that, you can do so at the registration table. Now, uh, climate change. Few topics arouse more passion and concern and discussion among the general population, academia, policy circles than this topic. And unfortunately, the debate has become rather polarized, uh, especially in recent years. There are those who advocate doing whatever it takes to maintain the current global climate at whatever cost. Um, you might imagine there might be some Canadians, Alaskans, and Russians that would prefer a bit of a warmer world, but they're certainly not the majority. Um, but seriously, how policymakers address these questions will have a major impact upon the global environment, upon economic prosperity, and uh, the, the quality of life for people in both the developed and developing worlds. Our first speaker today is Dr. Inder Goklani. He has worked with federal and state governments, think tanks, and the private sector for more than 30 years, and he has written extensively on the interactions between globalization, economic development, environmental quality, technological change, and human and environmental well-being. He was a U.S. delegate to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and to the team negotiating the U.N. Framework Convention on Climate Change. In the 1980s, he managed EPA's fledgling emission trading program before trading became popular. Dr. Guklani's policy innovations are increasingly going mainstream, and it will soon be clear why that is. He has written several books published by the Cato Institute. The most recent one is Improving the State of the World, or The Improving State of the World, Why We're Living Longer, Healthier, More Comfortable Lives on a Cleaner Planet. Dr. Goklani. Many people fear that despite economic growth, or perhaps because of it, climate change will reduce the well-being of future generations to below ours, and that they would be worse off in a richer but warmer world than in poorer but cooler worlds. Many politicians have also claimed that climate change is the most important environmental issue of this century. These claims can be tested, and that's what I intend to do. I will look at it, uh, I, will, I will look at the, uh, everything in the global, at the global scale, and un unlike most other studies of uh, climate change, I won't look at climate change in isolation, but in the context of other similar risks. Because if you don't have a context, even this, you do not know whether you're dealing with a molehill or a mountain. After answering those, uh, dealing with those three questions, I will, look, uh, I will address the issue of how best to address global warming while advancing human and environmental well-being. The sources of information that I will use uh, come from peer-reviewed studies. First of all, for the global impacts of climate change, I will use something called the fast-track assessments. 
These were sponsored by the British government, and the authors are intimately involved in the IPCC process. In fact, if you take a look at the authors of the FTA and many of the people who are on the IPCC, you'll find that there's a lot of commonality. I'll also look at the uh, results of the Stern Review, which drew upon the FTA and was also sponsored by the British. For mortality estimates, I will use the World Health Organization's uh, numbers. And for cost estimates, I will uh, uh, look at what the IPCC says and the United Nations Millennium Project. Now, this is the level of economic development, which is a surrogate for welfare in the future for developing countries and industri industrialized countries. Whoops. Uh, in 1990, sorry, let's do that again. In 1990, and then the last f uh, four sets of bars are for uh, 2085. Uh, I've arranged these from the richest but warmest on the left, the, the so-called A1FI scenario, where the FI stands for F for fossil fuel and I for intensive. That would give us a temperature increase of 4 degrees centigrade between 1990 and 2085. On the right-hand side, I have the cooler scenario, B1. For the most part, I will focus uh, on A1FI because it becomes a hell of, heck of a lot to look at all these different scenarios. Uh, I will also occasionally look at the A2. A2 is the poorest scenario. Obviously, the level of welfare, as measured by GDP per capita, is going to be higher if there is no climate change, which is what this figure is about. But the real issue is what happens if we impose climate change on the future world of tomorrow. And for that, I, can, I go to the Stern Review. The Stern Review made headlines around the world when it came out and said that climate change will reduce welfare by an equi amount equivalent to between 5 and 20% now and forever. And they looked at market impacts, non-market impacts, which means health and environmental uh, impacts, among other things, and it also looked at the risk of catastrophe. Although the Stern Review said 5 to 20%, if you go through the document, they said it could actually be as high as 35.2% in the year, year 2200. Now, many economists would dispute these figures, and they would say that actually 1% to 5% looks like a more reasonable number. It doesn't matter. I will use Stern's numbers. He's come up with these. Let's see where they lead us. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a look at the level of economic development, a surrogate for welfare, in, uh, in 2100, and bring it down by the loss in welfare as estimated by Stern, but I will assume a 35.2% loss, not in 2200, but in 2100. I want to assure you that I've given, and, and, and I'm using the most conservative estimate you could ever dream up. Okay. One thing we see from this curve, before the climate change situation, that everybody is going to be a, a, a much better. Both developed countries and developing countries are going to be much better off in 2100 than they were, were in 1990. This is the net welfare per capita in 2100. Uh, after, and, oh, whoops. Over here, I have adjusted for the loss in welfare due to climate change. This line that you see over here, that blue line, that essentially uh, seems to be hugging the axis, that's the level of 
welfare in 1990 as far as developing countries go. The red line is the level of welfare as far as, in 1990 as far as industrialized nations go. And we see that even after we subtract 35.2% from the A1FI, the richest but warmest scenario, both developed countries and develop, uh, uh, sorry, this is only for developing countries. The reason why I'm looking only at developing countries is because we are told that the population most at risk of climate change are developing countries. And that's because they lack the economic and human resources to acquire and use the technologies needed to cope with climate change. So let's, let's just focus on developing countries. Okay, we see, first of all, that in 20... And the other thing that I did was I assumed that the welfare loss would be proportional to the square of the temperature change between 1990 and 2085. So in 2100 we see that net welfare for developing countries will be, I can't read that, looks like 43,000 to me. In any case, it is much higher than the level of welfare in developed countries in 1990. In fact, it's higher than the level of welfare in developed countries in 2005. And even the United States level of welfare in 2005. Note that these are all in 1990 US dollars at... Uh, at um, uh, market exchange rates. So what do we see? First of all, we see that for, every, for developing countries, they're all better off than where they were. They will all be better off in 2100 than they were in 1990. So this notion that because of climate change, our descendants will be worse off does not hold water if stern is to be believed. And a lot of, uh, uh, some people say, but I don't believe the rates of economic development that you have put down here. And I say, if that's the case, then you should not believe the IPCC because that's where I got those numbers from. And that's where Stern got his numbers from. See, one of the problems we have in the climate change business, there's a lot of analysis done. And there's very little notion that the inputs that you have and the assumptions that you have should be consistent as you carry through your analysis. And in fact, most of the estimates of the impacts of climate change are overestimated. And the reason is because if you take a look at A1FI, for example, developing countries will be so much better off that the adaptive capacity is going to be much higher in the year 2100 than it was in the year 1990. So if people tell you, yes, it is true, Bangladesh has very low adaptive capacity today. But if you're going to take the numbers that have been developed by the IPCC's emission scenarios, which are the numbers that are driving your emissions and your climate change, then you have to make the correction for the increase in economic development. Then on top of that, you also have an increase in the level of technology. Technology does not stand still. All you have to do is take a look at what it used to be like 100 years ago and what it's like today. If you take a look at the major... Uh, uh, vector-borne diseases, for example, in the United States, between 1900 and 1970, they were reduced by anywhere between 99% to 100%, 100%. That is like putting it down to zero in the space of 70 years. But we can't, and we have these analyses that totally ignore these kinds of things. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Let's go on. So, one thing we see is that developing countries will be better off than they, than they were in uh, uh, in 1990. 
The other thing that we see is that developing countries may actually be better off than even developed countries are today. And the other thing that we see is that the highest level of welfare is for the richest but warmest okay uh, is for the richest but warmest uh, uh, scenario and the lowest level is for the poorest scenario therefore if we really want to advance human well-being we should be looking at advancing the richest scenario even if it leads to the extent that we know looking at the foreseeable future based on the stern analysis we should actually be going for the richest scenario rather than the poorest one okay let's look at the next issue is climate change the most important environmental issue facing the world what i have here are is is ranking of priorities based on mortality the numbers are from the world health organization for the year 2000 these are and i'm looking at food environment and nutri- nutritional risk factors I have here the top 7 or 8. I see all kinds of things related to food, hunger, nutrition, etc., unsafe water, indoor smoke, malaria, but I don't see climate change. Maybe it's on the next page and indeed it is. It's number 13. So today climate change is not the most important issue as when it comes to uh, public health. But what about the future? Because climate change is not going to stand still. Climate change is going to increase. and maybe we'll have more people at risk and so on so let's look at what happens in the future these are data from the the fast track assessment which as i mentioned was written by a bunch of people who are essentially for practical purposes part of the ipcc establishment this just for malaria i'm doing this just to make the make a point rather than go through the entire thing what this tells us this is for a scenario which gives us a 3.2 degree centigrade increase between 1990 and 2085 between 1990 and 2085 the population at risk of malaria in the absence of climate change which is give whoops uh, which is this uh, reddish bar will double from 4.4 billion to 8.8 billion that's in the absence of climate change that blue bar over there is the increment due to climate change and that is 323 million it's a big amount Nobody says 323 million is not a big amount but you have to put it in context it is only 3.5% of the total population at risk of malaria this is what i mean if you have something there and you don't have a context even the smallest molehill might look might seem to be the largest mountain okay let's go on I, uh, this is for hunger 20 uh, under the uh, richest but warmest scenario you will have as many as 21% at risk of hunger in 20 uh, in 2085 because of climate change the other 79% are due to non climate change related factors i convert those to uh, deaths using data from from 1990 to 2000 from the world health organization and i have data for hunger malaria and coastal flooding i'd use others if i if it was available to me but it's not anyway what this tells me is that the number of deaths from these three factors which are all climate sensitive would uh, go from about 4.3 million in 1990 to somewhere between 2 and 6 million in the year 2085 the maximum contribution of climate change to that is going to be between 4% and 10% the 10% is for the a1fi the richest but warmest scenario okay let's look at water stress for water stress 
Actually, the population at risk declines. This is, this is something that is not often talked about. And the reason why it declines is the following. First of all, the world, these are all inf uh, information from the FTA. That's a fast track assessment. The author of that was a gentleman by the name of uh, Arnell, who's also the lead author of the water resources chapter in the IPCC's latest report. What's happened is because the world is warmer, you get more precipitation, and on average you get more precipitation. Some areas will see, uh, however, a drying, but other areas will see more, more uh, precipitation. And it so happens that the areas that see more precipitation are the more populated areas of the world. So lo and behold, on the net, the population at risk of water stress declines. You have to, you have to read the water resources chapter and the summary for policymakers, like a lawyer, to find out exactly what's happening. Okay. In any case, we see that in each case, for each of those scenarios, in the year tw uh, uh, 2085, <coughs> excuse me, I have a cold. Uh, in the year 2085, water resource, uh, uh, climate change actually reduces the extent of water stress if we are looking at the net population at risk, which I think for a global analysis is the appropriate indicator. Okay, let's look, uh, let's look at the, uh, the conversion of habitat to cropland. Uh, conversion of habitat to cropland is the single most important threat to uh, terrestrial biodiversity. We find that as climate change uh, uh, if, you, if you take a look at the year 2100, actually the amount of cropland needed to feed the world declines from about 11.6% to something like, I can't read it, but it's like 5.8% or something. Uh, and uh, for, for the richest but warmest scenario, it also goes down for the coolest scenario. It actually goes up for the poorest scenario. Another reason why we don't want a poor world in the future. Net biome productivity. This is a, 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 a this is a measure of the biomass that will be there, that will grow on Earth. If climate is to change in the future, we see that these all go up with warming. Let's look at the average global loss of coastal wetlands. We see that. that the blue bar here is the, um, is the loss of wetlands due to sea level rise alone. The next bar, the reddish one, is due to other non-climate change related factors and the third bar is the total. In each case, the second bar, non-climate change related factors uh, reduce the amount of wetlands by a greater amount. Let's put all this together. Public health, and various ecological indicators in each case, climate change, when you start looking at it in the context of other changes, is less important. And I think that's, uh, th that's really critical. Okay, let's go on. How do we best reduce damages from global warming while advancing human and environmental well-being? Let's go to malaria as a case example. If we eliminate climate change, 
between 1990 and 2085. Then in the year 2085, the maximum reduction you'll get in malaria is 3.5%. Okay. Now, we do not know how much that will cost. We know that the Kyoto Protocol would reduce this by 0.2%. Okay. I don't know how much that costs. I use a figure of $160 billion per year. Eliminating climate change will cost much more than $165 billion. I don't even want to know how much it will cost. It's unnecessary for our purposes. Uh, however, if we focus not on this 3.5%, but on this total amount, 100% of the amount, which I call that focused adaptation. The theory behind focused adaptation is that we reduce vulnerability to malaria regardless of what is causing it. For example, if you have a malaria vaccine, that will deal with not only this 3.5%, but the 96.5% sitting behind, underneath that, 100% of the problem. And this makes perfect sense. If you go after the whole problem, you have more targets of opportunity, and there are greater, uh, there's a greater likelihood that you'll be more effective. In fact, uh, we, uh, if the cost of the Kyoto Protocol is $165 billion per year, we'd reduce that by 0.2%. Uh, uh, malaria in the year 2085 by 0.2%. But according to the United Nations Millennium Project, we could reduce malaria by 75% at a cost of $3 billion. You may not believe it, but that's what it says. Even if they're off by an order of magnitude, I, and 90% and, and of that money is wasted, you'll still be way ahead. Okay. Okay, we can do the same thing for... Uh, uh, for hunger, we can focus our efforts on reducing current vulnerabilities that developing countries face today with respect to agricultural productivity and hunger, and that will do a lot more good than going just after climate change. Okay, if you take a look at deaths, we can reduce, by halting climate change, we can reduce deaths in the year 2085 from these three categories by as much as 10%. If you go through the United Nations Millennium Project and you assign dollar figures for different amounts of reduction in hunger, malaria, and coastal flooding, it comes to about $34 billion. And, and my general approach to things is let's look at the upper bound estimates. If with an upper bound estimate you can't make a good case for it, then you know what? It's not worth getting into the nitty gritty because the result is not going to be any different. Okay. So far I've talked about the focused adaptation approach. The other approach to dealing with the uh, impacts of climate change is to mitigate, reduce emissions. There's yet another approach. Recall that developing countries are most at risk, not necessarily because climate change will be the greatest in the tropical areas where the where they are generally located, but because they lack because they lack the economic and human resources. So, so the, real, the fundamental problem is that they lack development. Because they lack development, they lack adaptive capacity. So what is the solution to the fundamental problem of the lack of development? It is you put resources and your efforts and everything else into pushing for development. And if we were to do that, since I'm, I've taken up way too much time, okay, I will show, he, show you here 
the maximum benefits in 2085 and the cost of mitigation and adaptation under the richest but warmest scenario. Okay, I want to... I've, I've, okay, let's look at this table. I have here two scenarios for mitigation, the Kyoto Protocol and halting climate change in 1990, if it's feasible. Then I've got two adaptation approaches. One is focused adaptation, which is the same thing as uh, increasing resilience and reducing vulnerability to current problems that are climate sensitive and could be exacerbated by climate change. That is, that is essentially what one has to look for. And that way you'll be able to s solve not only the current problem, but also if climate change makes that problem worse, we'll be able to deal with that too. The other approach is broad development. Okay, let's look at how, much we'd, uh, how many lives we might be able to sa uh, save by the year 2085. The Kyoto Protocol would reduce uh, mortality from the three uh, risk factors that we had looked at by 1%. Halting climate change would reduce it by 10%. And adapt both the adaptation approaches, the way I've structured them, would reduce them by between 50 and 75%. Comes out to be 64%. Okay. And the costs are given here. The Kyoto Protocol of the order of $165 billion, Halting climate change, I don't know. It's greater than 165. That's more than I earned, so that's, and I think it's uh, pretty expensive. The cost of focused adaptation would be about $34 billion per year. And the cost of broad development, again, according to the United Nations Millennium Project, is of the order of $165 billion. That's about 0.5% of global GDP of the, sorry, I think it's GDP of the developed world. Okay, with respect to Water, uh, water stress, we see that actually mitigating makes matters worse. With respect to progress towards other development goals, we see that we'll have virtually no progress under the Kyoto Protocol, some progress under, the climate, uh, under uh, a system that reduces, that halts climate change, but we'd see a lot more uh, progress under adaptation and even greater under the broad, broad development rubric. Okay, uh, now let's go back to the water stress. This is, there's a very important point there. The point is, if you use mitigation, it's a blunt instrument. You're going to reduce the good stuff and the bad stuff as well as the ugly and the indifferent. But if you have adaptation, you can pick and choose. Therefore, and this is especially important in the near term, because in the near term we can pick and choose. Okay. Uh, and also with respect to habitat, it, uh, it looks like the adaptation approaches uh, would provide, uh, uh, would, uh, would result in better ecological well-being. Okay, let's summarize. Climate change is, not, is probably not the world's most important public health or environmental problem. I've, I see, this actually gets me totally crazy. I see people say this, but there's never any accompanying analysis. Compared to what? Have you ever seen, when anybody says climate change is the most important issue, is there an accompanying analysis that says, based on this comparison? I've never seen it. I think this is what people need to ask. Because, again, if you don't look at other factors, it will obviously be the most important thing. I work, and uh, where I work, I think the thing that I'm doing is the single most important thing in the world. 
That's us human beings. But we need to step, uh, uh, step back and take a look at the broader perspective, and nobody's doing that. Okay. Uh, I think I lost a page. Okay, well, richer but warmer worlds will likely have higher well-beings than cooler worlds. Future generations will have greater capacity to both adapt and mitigate climate change. And adaptation is superior to mitigation, at least for the foreseeable future, which I say is 2085 to 2100, which I think is actually overly optimistic. If the future was that foreseeable, we wouldn't have our uh, mortgage crisis for example, and many others. Okay. Um, okay. Um, the analysis that I looked at went out to the year 2085 and 2100. What this tells me is that at least until 2085, we have a cushion. But actually, we have less of a cushion than that. Because if it takes 50 years to turn over our energy system, we have 2085 less 50, which is at least till 2035. That's, uh, and that's why I say we don't need to make any efforts that go beyond no regrets when it comes to mitigation until the year 2035. In the meantime, we should observe what's going on. We should observe what's going on. We should, under, uh, we should increase society's resilience. We should undertake focused adaptation. We should let no regret actions uh, bloom forth, so to speak. We should also try to expand the range of no regret actions. No regret actions is not a fixed set of actions. If you put money into research and development, you'll be constantly expanding the, their range. And that's what we should be doing. And of course, we need to do science and monitoring just in case there are issues that are coming down the pike that we had not anticipated, which might hit us before 2085. Okay, essentially, and the other thing I should mention is that if you, yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, I showed you two slices of time, 1990 and 20, uh, 2085. Mitigation is not going to be very effective for the next few decades. What, uh, and we saw from this that the mortality rate will go from about 4 billion to somewhere between 2 and 6 billion in the year 2085. Mitigation will do, uh, 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 adaptation will allow us to deal with the 2 to 6 billion also. Not only in the year 2085, but at every time between here and there. Whereas mitigation will have virtually no impact until, uh, say, 2035, 2045. So what we have here, is an approach that will solve the urgent problems that today's generations face while advancing the ability of future generations who will be wealthier, as we have seen, and who will be more technologically advanced than we are to deal with whatever problems that, uh, I have no idea what happened, whatever problems uh, uh, we will face in the future. Thank you. Our next speaker is Dr. Patrick J. Michaels. He is a senior fellow in environmental studies at the Cato Institute, a professor of environmental sciences at the University of Virginia, a past president of the American Association of State Climatologists, and was program chair for the Committee on Applied Climatology at the American Meteorological Society. 
Michaels is a contributing author and reviewer of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which was awarded the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize. His writings have been published in a variety of major scientific journals as well as in major media. He was an author of the Climate Paper of the Year awarded by the Association of American Geographers in 2004. According to Nature Magazine, Pat Michaels is one of the most popular lecturers in the nation on the subject of global warming. His most recent book is Meltdown, The Predictable Distortion of Global Warming by Scientists, Politicians, and the Media. Dr. Michaels. Hi there. While they're, play <clears throat> while they're playing with these files, I'd like to congratulate Inder on a fine, fine paper. Uh, and to note that Inder is taking um, what are the highest end climate scenarios from the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. But uh, for all of you, let me see if we can do this. Okay. Where's, where's the advance on here? Forward. For all of you, <clears throat> there's, another, there's another current in this Congress which is driving you to policy. And that is the notion that the United Nations scenarios are wrong and that all the ice is going to fall off of Greenland with a net sea level rise of about six meters by the year 2100. That's generally espoused by James Hansen from NASA. I just want to take a few minutes to put Inder's remarks uh, and that scenario in context, and I will be very, very brief. This is the UN's temperature history, by the way, and I want, I want to dispel one myth right now that's been going on, that global warming has stopped. That's something going around on the conservative circles. Uh, that's based upon this look at data from 1998 through 2007. In fact, if you run the trend line through the data, it fits the trend line very, very well with very, very little error. <coughs> and uh, the trend remains about 0.17 degrees C per decade, which is a very useful figure for the future. Uh, I'm going to, to just tell you the context that you live in for a little bit. You guys are suffering from a political process, meaning all the news that you receive is bad. My profession doesn't think that's the case. My profession thinks it's very even-handed. There's a quote on there from a Supreme Court brief which says that new results on global warming have an equal probability of being worse than we thought or better than we thought. So I took a look at 13 months of Science and Nature magazine, classified articles on global warming as worse than we thought, not as bad as we thought, or neutral. There were 115 articles, nine were not as bad as we thought, 83 were worse than we thought. The hypothesis of my profession is that this is a, bi is an, is a binomial probability. There's 50-50 chance of better or worse. What a crock. Uh, and people in the economic literature and the biomedical literature know that there's something called publication bias. The probability of unbiased research getting, is the same as flipping a coin 92 times and getting nine or fewer heads, less than one in 10, followed by <coughs> 16 zeros. So you're dealing with a biased stream of information. Remember that, staffers. When somebody says, ah, look at this study, the chances are that it's on one side of the issue. And there are many reasons for that that, that Cato likes to explore. But I want to just talk about a couple other of these big issues that are Threatening us. Uh, the big ice melt is Antarctica melting. This is from the GRACE satellite uh, data published in 2006. Note that the first data point here is way off from the other data points. And if you, miss, if you eliminate that one in your eye, you will see uh, that the trend is very, very little to non-existent. I'm surprised this paper got published. No, I'm not, because that's part of my study and, on bias in the literature. Uh, in fact, as you probably know, Antarctica's temperature is either cooling or staying the same. It's the Antarctic Peninsula down here, which shows the warming, but the net change in Antarctica is either negative or neutral. And that has led to a remarkable thing that is very uncovered in the news. This is the sea ice departure from normal for the Southern Ocean. Uh, 
it's obviously there's a, a seasonal cycle, and so you have to adjust it for whatever month you're in. And if you take a look at this point right here, which is where we are at right now, the sea ice is at its record high level ever since it was measured. Uh, the satellite went up in 1979. But now the Greenland, aha, the Greenland dog. This is from Gore's book, An Inconvenient Truth. <clears throat> the idea here is that the water is going to get underneath the ice. You've all heard this story, and it's going to all slide off of Greenland. Sure, and that this is something unique. These photographs show some of the dramatic changes that are happening on the ice out there. That's from his book. Well, we do have temperature histories from Greenland. The Danes left behind one heck of a network. It actually goes back into the late 18th century. Whoops, you can see today's temperature right here uh, is, not, is not higher on the average in the last decade than 50 years in the early 20th century. So <clears throat> did all the ice fall off of Greenland in the early 20th century? Obviously not. Was there an acceleration of sea level rise? Obviously not. Here's a picture of the same thing that Gore showed. This taken in 1951. Okay? So the notion that if this continues for a decade or two, <clears throat> all this is going to happen is simply and completely wrong. I'd like to take you to Warming Island, by the way. You guys are going to like this, I guarantee you. You've seen the island made by global warming. You all know these stories. It came out of the New York Times. About a year ago, a peninsula long thought to be part of Greenland's mainland turned out to be an island when a glacier retreated. And this has set up a cult. You know, if you Google Warming Island, there is the cult of Warming Island. Uh, in fact, there, here is a picture of what was thought to be. You can see this very funny-shaped uh, island here. It's got three fingers on it that points out like that from a place called Carlsbad Fjord in northeastern Greenland. Here you can see it detaching, satellite imagery from 1985 through 2002, and by 2005, it's detached. There's another picture from the other side of it showing one of the three ridges on Warming Island. And I asked the question, and you should ask the question, well, we know, here's the nearest weather, weather station, Angmasalik. We know that the temperatures were warmer on average for the last, in, in these decades here than they were for the last 10 years. So what happened? Well, Bill Niskanen, who's in the audience at Cato, this is what you pay me the big bucks for to find out obscure sources in the literature, Arctic Riviera by Ernst Hoffer, an aerial photographer. Was published, he chose the title because he was surprised by how warm it got in the summer. He did aerial photography to support the expeditions in Greenland. Okay, take a close look, ladies and gentlemen. Here's Carlsbad Fjord. See that right there? And what's this? That's Warming Island. It's an island. All the stories were wrong. People didn't even bother to check for 50 years worth of data. Uh, and in fact, <clears throat> this is from the IPCC's report. This uh, red area here, which is labeled Greenland, is several millennia back about uh, seven to 10,000 years ago when Greenland was seven, uh, two degrees C warmer in the summer than it is now. Did all the ice fall off of there? No. In fact, this paper by Glenn McDonald uh, is underestimated in, in the UN report. The paper actually says summer temperatures in northern Eurasia where I'll do it in Fahrenheit, between 4 and 13 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than present era. That's right. That was for several millennia. That popped up for hundreds of years at a time in those millennia. Did all the ice fall off of Greenland? No. We don't see it. It was still there. Finally, uh, to, to just wrap up, how much will it warm? I'm going to use a slightly different United Nations scenario than Indoor did. This is the A1B scenario. This is the median, the mid-range emissions scenario. And I'd like to convince you there are various and sundry computer models on here that are run. Uh, in our business, we like to do ensemble modeling. For some reason, we discovered this with weather forecasting models. If you have uh, a large number of models and you look at their ensemble behavior, you seem to get a better 
answer. It's in the same way, uh, if this was a weather forecasting class, believe, believe it or not, I don't know if anybody knows why this is true, but if I took your individual forecast accuracy and tracked it over time, it would be worse than the group's average. The group would average to be the best forecaster. Very, very strange. Sort of a, a, a wisdom of models rather than a wisdom of crowds. Now, let me just point out something to you. This ensemble behavior is a straight line. So ask yourself, is the warming that's been observed since it started, the, the, the greenhouse-related warming in the late 1970s, is it a straight line? Well, you saw it before, right there. Saw it earlier in this talk. Actually, that one only goes through 05. The previous slide went through 07. It could not be straighter. And therefore, that gives you a warming range for the future. Those models you see in this illustration were fed 1% carbon dioxide increase per year, which is too much. That's why they produce too much warming, but you get about 1.7 or 1.8 degrees C. And that leads you to a very, very serious question. Should you do anything about this at all? I know that's politically incorrect. But you adapted to 1 degree C in the last 100 years. Life expectancy doubled in the developing world. The de developed, developed world. In the developing world, you can expect that to happen in the next 100 years. Are you willing to take capital from today in a futile attempt to stop warming? Okay, go ahead and pass a 50% carbon, carbon cap uh, reduction by 2030 or 2040. And then check the cost. And first of all, you're going to notice it will do nothing about the warming trajectory within the foreseeable future, and it will take the capital away that Inder says would be invested in the future, even in the worst case. Just don't take it away, okay? That's all I have to say.